0: Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Mona Simpson, author of the novel Commitment.
1: I think writing a novel is a spiritual exercise. And when, you know, there's a certain point in the writing where the novel begins to give back to you, you know, and patterns that you hadn't planned emerge. And so you you kind of follow them.
0: We'll be back with Mona Simpson after these essential words. So June 2023 marks the 10-year anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? at what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests, I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is how did we get to 9,000 hours is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor, and I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, while well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters, and that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material, with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with Mona Simpson, best-selling author of the novels Anywhere But Here, The Lost Father, A Regular Guy, Off Keck Road, My Hollywood, and Casebook. Off Keck Road was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award and won the Heartland Prize from the Chicago Tribune. She has received a Whiting Writers Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Lila Wallace Reader's Digest Writers Award, an award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She is on the faculty at UCLA and also teaches at Bard College. In 2020, she was named publisher of the Paris Review. She lives in Santa Monica, California. Her new novel is called Commitment and tells the story of a single mother's collapse and the fate of her three children after she enters a California state hospital in the 1970s. The story's matriarch, Diane Aziz, falls into a deep depression after driving her oldest son, Walter, from L.A. to UC Berkeley. Diane used a fake address to get all three of her kids into a prestigious public school in Pacific Palisades, a town she can't afford to live in, and one where her kids don't have the same privileges as their wealthy classmates. Her middle child, Lena, works in an ice cream parlor while her friends prepare to attend Ivy League schools, and Donnie, the youngest, starts getting into trouble hanging out on the beach and using drugs. When Diane enters a mental hospital, Her best friend, Julie, moves in and takes care of her kids. Commitment follows all four members of the Aziz family and Julie as they navigate health and love, duty and freedom, family life, and the world inside and outside of the mental health hospital. We began with me, for whatever reason, asking Mona Simpson this question. I guess I kind of want to start and ask you if you were like a loquacious child. (laughs) I
1: don't think I was a loquacious child. No, I was, I was painfully shy. So I don't think I talked much at all. Did
0: you live in kind of your imagination? And did you write in journals when you were a kid?
1: Um, I think I started that sort of in, you know, in childhood, but not not early childhood. I think I started out as a real reader of anything I could get. And then eventually, I started writing, I think, in, you know, junior high or high school. Did you have an early influence back then? I had a, a classic sort of public school education, um, and so I read. I just read anything I could get. You know, I read National Geographic's from cover to cover. I read all those Stratemeyer series: the Bobbsey Twins, the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, um, all of those. And I would I would read one in a day. So, and then eventually I got to libraries
0: for the commitments and so many of your books. I. I think are are so big, and they hold so much. And this book, you know, covered the light a long time span of the Aziz family, with three children and their mother and their friend, and then their partners later. How do you go about when you have a story kind of this big and sweeping in time? How do you begin to write and organize something like this?
1: I usually write a long first draft and then I sort of outline it and get the, and I'm, I'm sort of always at any time in the last, you know, in the years of a book, I have elaborate timelines on the wall. You know, I just, I just print them out and tape them up on the wall. So I'm always sort of keeping track of things like that and trying to, trying to, you know, cut out the parts that don't matter. I mean, I'm always, I'm always struck by the, um, transitions in Dickens but like I, I came across a line in Bleak House the last time I read it and and, and so they live thusly for the next seven years you know at right to the next part that matters I like being novels that cover time it is a challenge to keep keep the strands running and to keep to hope hope to keep the you know to keep the pulse points intense and, and make sure that there's not too much um too much of the quotidian
0: what do you think it is about the the coverage of time that you connect with
1: well that is that is our medium that we live in you know really time i mean it's our it's our genre so to speak i'm just really interested in in what that brings and what how how different choices play out in time it's funny i mean the the more plot, I remember when I was younger, I just mistrusted plot a great deal. It seemed very imposed on, on stories. But I don't know. I mean, we've all now that I've lived a few decades and 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 gotten and I've watched, you know, I've watched things play out. I've watched people, people. I, I don't know. I guess I've seen the ends of things a lot, which which gives you a, a greater appreciation of, of plot. So with this story,
0: you're mainly focusing on the Aziz children. So you have Walter, Lena, and Donnie. And there are three siblings, Walter is the oldest, Lena is the middle, Donnie is the youngest, that their father disappeared. And he was Afghani and a mystery to them. And their mother, Diane, starts off kind of on shaky ground, you know, she's very sad that she's the single mother. She does what she can for her kids. They live in a not very good neighborhood in LA, but she lies about their address to get them in a good high school in Pacific Palisades and wants them to have a good education. And she's a nurse, but she starts to unravel when the oldest goes to college in Berkeley and ends up in an institution to, and being medicated for her mental health and depression. And the kids End up living with a friend of hers, Julie, who really is a saint and kind of takes over parental duties for Diane. And we're kind of watching each of these kids' journey, dealing with Diane, Diane's journey, and how I would say, kind of, that mental health is communal, that it doesn't affect just one person. And so I'm curious for you, you know, I asked you how you wrote this, but I'm also really curious about the inception of the idea and what you wanted to really explore with these characters.
1: You know, I I grew up myself without siblings. I grew up as an only child with a single mom. And I would say my mom who's 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 now dead suffered from from some mental health challenges. I mean, she she managed and she worked and she she did all right. She raised me, but she definitely suffered um, herself. And I remember um, in 2012, there was a Oliver Sacks published a, a piece called "The Lost Virtues of the Asylum," and it was about his. He had worked for 25 years in 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 mental in the mental health hospital in Bronx State, and you know he he started out by saying how we we in our generation you know we're 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 in the sort of post-institutional age i mean there aren't there aren't these big state mental health hospitals anymore there aren't orphanages anymore there aren't you know homes for unwed mothers anymore in the same way that all these institutions were around when i was when i was growing up and he actually he starts up by saying, "Of course, the image we have in our minds of the old state mental health systems is of the snake pit, is a cuckoo's nest of, you know." But but he remembers in the in his 25 years of working there, um, many patients who were actually helped by living in a smaller, safer world. And I guess this book started out. It's it set, you know, right at the point where the the mental health hospitals were beginning to empty out. So it's it was a little bit of a what if I've, I've always felt with my with my mother's life, as I said, I had a single mother who worked very hard and, and did did her best and did pretty well, but suffered a lot. And I've always felt that what would have happened if she had had if there had been an alternative for her. I think it probably would have been worse for me, but I, it was it was sort of my my questioning of whether whether it would have been gentler for her. After you wrote this, did you come up with an answer? I think, like so many things, yes and no. You know, I mean, there are so many. um, Of course, everything comes down to people. You know, into into sort of and, and luck. I mean, if if she had been in a in a particularly gentle, kind ward with with a nice nurse and a good doctor, yes, that would have been good. If she had been in one of the more overcrowded places with someone indifferent or cruel as of course that existed too. No, it would have been worse. Did you feel
0: writing this at all that because so much of your writing is influenced by your life and then you take it a step further that you, do you look at things in your personal life differently when you write them out to conclusion? I don't mean just like the question about your mom in a mental institution, but If writing informs your life.
1: I mean, in this case, it really was all made up. I mean, my mom was never in a mental institution. I was never, you know, nobody in my family was ever in a a hospital for, except for tonsils and so forth. But, but um, I don't think so. Although I wonder, you know, I mean, I I don't think so. I think I'm usually living my life just trying to live the best life I can. And, and, I think the writing—I don't know. I mean, I say that's where this novel started, and and but it it wasn't that I was actually picturing my own mother. I would, I it 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 sort of took on a life of its own, and the people kind of became real in their own way, different from from my life, certainly.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm just curious. I I think about how our creative process, which tends to be I mean it's generated from your own brain. things in the world influence yeah. you of course, but you spend years doing this like a lot of times we we must go out in the world to be influenced and to grow as a human. but I also wonder if if our creative acts influence our spiritual awakening or understanding of ourselves or our connection to
1: other people um, just by the act of exploration. I think so. And I think we're all sort of pattern making creatures, you know, so it is kind of I mean, I think I think writing a novel is a spiritual exercise. And when, you know, there's a certain point in the writing where the novel begins to give back to you, you know, and patterns that you hadn't planned emerge. And so you you kind of follow them as much as you impose upon them.
0: It's so magical amidst the toil. Yes.
1: Both those things.
0: So, you know, the period of your book is 1970s, 1980s, which I think in some ways you you said that around the time that you were growing up. And it does seem like in many ways, uh, a more innocent time for people. You're writing about Berkeley. You're writing about Los Angeles. You're writing about New York during that time. And I think what you're saying is, you know, because of the Oliver Sacks story, you were really interested in the time where things existed that didn't exist anymore. But I'm also curious about just writing about that time period and the musical references and the clothes mm-hmm. and the way that families got along or were seen.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it it does seem like a different time, and it's it's. I think it's sometimes I like writing a little bit into the past. I mean i admire people like hillary mantel who really take on you know took on centuries in the past and i think that's that's a whole different thing but it is it is sort of wonderful to write a little bit away from right now so because you can see it more clearly i think even i think we can probably each pretty much understand even our grandparents eras you know because that's all sort of in vocal memory of our families and we we know all that
0: in the beginning of the book, like, I think it was on page five, when we meet Walter in the beginning, and he's going away to Berkeley. And at first, he's going to have a classmate that he went to high school with their family drive him, and then they showed up and it was kind of embarrassing for his mom. And it, it ended up that his family drove. But you reference too that the mom of that family who seems really happy and perfect, is unhappy so you're referencing kind of unhappy moms and you know you were talking about a little a little bit how your mom was dealing with that but just curious about unhappy moms
1: <laughs> well in the very first scene yes the classmates mom susan's mom makes walter's mom feel sort of inadequate because she's relinquishing her son to drive up with them and so Walter's mom feels offended and decides, well, they'll drive up too. So they just take off on the spur of the moment and, and drive up, although they hadn't prepared to. And so it was a little mom competition between the more traditional mom and the single mom who obviously worked and, and was juggling more things. Um, and I think I think also I was, it, it, I think it it was just a little bit of a flash at the end that Walter, when he gets to know the girl who, he would have driven up with. Um, he learns that in fact her mom, who seemed so perfect to his mom, was actually unhappy too, as 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 many in, that, in the, as you, you know, that was the the moment of 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 you know the feminine mystique. And and that was the moment when when a lot of women were realizing they weren't happy with their lives as as wives and mothers.
0: And I think that that the challenges of happiness were really on a spectrum with all of your characters. You know, you have the mom that goes to the asylum, but as I mentioned earlier, the kind of communalness of mental illness, like not just that everyone's affected, but you can be, maybe have a totally, quote, (laughs) healthy mind, but if you have someone close to you that you love that has mental illness, of course, you're going to suffer, but then there's also the variety of the stableness of these kids and what they inherited or what they went through, and I am curious about your exploration of like happiness.
1: <laughs> I think we're all we're all exploring that all the time, you know. Um, I I do think in, in in intimacy. First of all, I think mental illness is not a stable state any more than. I suppose, mental health is in the sense that I think anyone who's mentally ill may have other even connected, even intimately related qualities that are kind of wonderful, you know. Um, so I think that that both things can exist. I think you could grow up with a mentally ill parent who also had a magical sense of reality, and that could be kind of wonderful and enclosing and and sparkling at the same time. So, but I also do think that I think someone's illness in the family, probably not only mental illness but any kind of an illness it just it just travels through the family it's not if, if you are or or through the through the intimacy it wouldn't have to be a family but I think I think we kind of go we do share the burdens and the and the exhilarations of the people we're closest to and so so for example um you know, the mother's mental illness affects the son at Berkeley who feels less less like partying, certainly, when his mother is in the hospital and feels, feels an additional pressure, a sort of obscure pressure to just get his life in order and to do well and to make money. And at the same time, too, he, one feels his love life is affected by it. There's, there's a girl he's really attracted to and at one point, he sees her go off with another with another young man in a, in a convertible, and he feels he almost feels he feels it's okay because he feels he he couldn't really handle it now. He couldn't he couldn't step up to that next level of life experience or intensity. Right then, he didn't he didn't have enough to offer. Um, at the same time, you know, there's a scene with. Um, daughter who is really on a date at one point when she's in school and and, and very much excited about this date um, but has to explain you know when, when the question of asking about her parents comes up has to explain that her mother has, is in a hospital and has been there for some time and that's a very awkward thing like when and how do you explain that on a date and Finally, she gets to talking about her father, who's just not in the picture. And and she can complain about him the way most people complain about their parents. And there's a, a little bit of relief in that. And so they each take on a part of it.
2: The publishing industry is a system.
0: Books are mirrors in people's experiences.
2: And in season two of Missing Pages... We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of The Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial.
1: She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for
0: fear of getting sanctioned or fired.
2: We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can child-proof your world, but you can't world-proof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You
0: know, Walter took a path where he wanted to make money. Lena took a path where she wanted to make art. And Donnie, he became an addict and then took a path where he was trying to make amends and make his life very simple so i'm curious to hear more about how you kind of chose how the the ramifications of of their birth order and their relationship with their mom chose the trajectory or or influence the trajectory of what you wanted to explore in each character
1: well even with the same parents in a way we don't all have the same parents even if we have the same parents because you know they're diff- they're different at a different time. So so Walter grew up very much sort of the first child, and and his mother's hopes and dreams were very much pinned on him. So he he has a kind of confidence, and and also she was well most of his life. So so most of most of her troubles didn't vividly they weren't vividly clear until he was already away. So his trajectory is is quite different. For example, his sister very much worries, is it in her too? Is whatever her mother has, will this happen to her as well? Um, He doesn't really think that for a moment. I mean, that never occurred to him that he or his siblings would would have these problems. Um, Lena definitely sort of like a lot of daughters, I think, wants to not be her mother, but is ter- terrified that she is her mother in some deep way. And then the youngest child, Donnie, grew up very close to his mother, and yeah. his instinct is 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 much more intuitive. He's less like the other two. He's a little less driven. He was a third child. He was left on his own to pursue what interested him. What started out interested in him was was computer games. Then he he got into a few other things. Um, and yes, did did the experiment with drugs and then then finds himself eventually in rehab in the same hospital in the youth unit of the same hospital where his mother is. Um, and and that provides a certain um strange comfort for him. He feels like he was actually aiming for that, aiming for being with her again, even though he wouldn't have thought of it that way at all. Um, and he's the one who ends up seeing her the most in the in the later years of their life.
0: And as you're telling the story about these three children, you're shifting points of view all the time. Like in the beginning, we're with Walter and then it shifts and we learn that we're gonna kind of see this world through each of their lenses. And it's so subtle. it's it's not, necessarily only just like at chapter breaks it's it happens like in a flow like almost the way that people think from one thing to the other and I'm wondering how you if this is what you intended in the beginning and how you kind of manage that as the orchestra leader
1: you know my first couple of books were in first person and I'm actually a, a shorter book I'm working on now is also in first person so I guess i I started writing with a very particular first person voice. And I I but as a reader, I I really prefer the worlds of third person narrators who are seen. Um, you know, who's I, I love I love the old 19th century narrator where they see everything. Um so I wanted that. I wanted that fluidity. I wanted that nimbleness. There's even some characters who aren't the central three, like the mother's friend. And of course Friendship is never simple either. I think in this friendship, Julie always had a sort of—it was a romantic friendship for her in some ways. She always admired her colleague and friend, Diane, and 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 was aware that Diane had these kids, so she couldn't impose on her too much. But she really loved that friendship, and and now in Diane's trouble, she has an opportunity both to to help Diane, but also to 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 have a life with children, which she never actually had herself. So I also wanted little bits of her point of view as well. And how did you
0: manage it? Like, did you feel like when you were writing, it just kind of came spontaneously where you reached the end of a either thought or idea and you just moved into someone's head? Was it really finely crafted over
1: time? Some parts were just, you know, sometimes you just feel like you're taking dictation and other times you work and work and work that transition a hundred times. And it's funny in the, in the finished book of the parts I like, I don't know. Sometimes I, I like the parts I worked on the hardest. Sometimes I like the parts that I didn't touch that the sentence, you know, so it's, it doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be any logic to it. It's not like if you, if you work tremendously hard on a passage, it's, it necessarily ends up better or worse.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like a good hair day. Sometimes you just don't know.
1: (laughs) Exactly. There's a lot of luck involved. Although I do think, it, yeah, I think that's right. I think, I think the ideal is if you can get to the point where the parts you worked on very hard feel as natural as the parts that you didn't.
0: You mentioned Julie and she was the friend. And at first, you know, their work colleagues and you see them as friends. And we, we don't really know that much from Diane's point of view, but Julie kind of swept in as a savior figure. So I thought she was um very complicated because she was she wasn't necessarily doing it to be a savior. She cared about the kids and she wanted to help her friend, but she really dedicated the rest of her life. Um, of her adult life that we see to these kids, to moving in with them, to taking care of them, to visiting Diane at the asylum as much as she could. Um, and that's complicated, even though maybe she made it seem like it was the
1: only thing she wanted to do with her life. I think she she definitely had a, a sort of romantic friendship with Diane, maybe even was a little in love with Diane, but then also became very, very bonded in particular with the youngest child she really they really clicked in some way i think the older children were very caught up with their own lives and by the time all this happened they were walter was already at college lena was looking towards college or lo- looking towards leaving home but donnie was still a kid and and was able to somehow really accepted her from the get go and I think probably got things from Julie that he didn't get from his mother, um, and she saw parts of her life expand. I think, I think she was someone who'd come from Michigan. She had a family back in Michigan. She had a, a brother with some children, and she has she had her work and she had her friends. But she, she had a, a sort of carefully orchestrated single life, the way the way some people do, and and had it very. Um, very carefully planned, but this this unexpected thing came into her life and she sort of she saw it as something to rise to and and found I think she found herself really loving it. I think she found herself very um fulfilled in some ways by her relationship with Donnie.
0: I felt mostly that Lena probably had it the hardest. Like she didn't suffer in some of the ways that Donnie did later um with his own addiction and and issues for him. But Lena, she was so smart, but she was so stuck. Like she was just at this very precarious age where she was in high school and they didn't have money and she had to be the eldest one in charge of the siblings. And she made some grave errors about applying to college and she was really trying to provide the best she could. But I felt like she was the most just stuck and agitated by it all but i don't know what you would say to that
1: yeah i think she she acted out in many ways the most i think maybe because she was the least separated from her mother you know she she both rebelled against her mother but but felt very very close to her and so and and she does this reckless thing which is she she decides to just apply to a few places for college and and that's it doesn't doesn't do any safety schools and then and then gets a job in in a store and and finds herself able to do that and is sort of working up the ranks of the store um so she's 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 out there more than more than her older brother for sure
0: i felt when i finished the book that it was definitely about the mental illness but i felt like it was really about identity i think you know growing up and how you define yourself with maybe a mother who's in an asylum or a father who's missing. And how do you, how do you carve out who you are? How do you understand um, that? And I was curious about your reaction to that and what you think about identity.
1: I think that's true. And I think, I think these three each sort of form their own identity. I think like a lot of times when there is struggle in a family or, or poverty or anything particularly challenging, the siblings have a they have a certain tenderness towards each other. I think they they remain close. So their identity is a little bit the edges are a little bit affected by the other, all three of them. But I think that it's very much about about what people do. I mean William James writes about the firstborn in, in terms of religious experience. The firstborn, those who were sort of brought up in a religion, accept the religion, carry forth the religion, teach their children that same religion, and and it's they're they're always in the religion. They're always believers. It always comes naturally. And then there's the twice born, and those who really have to kind of come to it on their own, who who have some real break with whatever they were born with. And these are three kids who, in the middle of their childhood had to sort of raise themselves. So it's really about an earned identity, not not an assumed identity that they were born into and just grew up into.
0: Yeah, and I love how Walter, for instance, just realized, I mean, he was smart. He did well in school and he just was so close to the end of school. At first, he really wanted to be a doctor. He was very good at architecture and he just figured in the end, I just need to make money. And he did. And he did. I, I mean, there's not many people that can wake up someday and say, "I re- I wish I could make money," and they and they do.
1: Right. I have I have a partner who's like that. He as a child lived lived in inner city in Indianapolis, and and across from a golf course, and used to collect the golf balls, and and people coming to golf would would come and buy buy balls from him before they went in. As like an eight year old kid, Walter has that knack. He's the kid who managed to, you know, rake everybody's leaves and, and to and he he's able to figure that out. So he's also pursuing a bit more of what what he wants to do.
0: Yeah, I felt like that's, you know, some people boomerang, you know, he, he grew up in poverty, like some people sink deeper into it and some people sort of rebel against it. And he he had the fortune of not really witnessing it in the same way as his siblings. So right. maybe he had more freedom to have more belief or, or to be more resilient. I mean, I think he felt guilty that he wasn't there.
1: I think also what he happened to be good at was something that was marketable, you know, in a, in a way um, it's, it's probably harder to become, or it's it's not harder. It's just different. It, he, he, he had a marketable skill um and he found people who could he was good at finding people who could help him he found his mentor who who got him in touch with his first big big job and 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 he managed to do it i i interviewed it was fun i interviewed a number of um there happens to be a really there happen to be some terrible um big shopping center malls in los angeles that have been built in the last few years but there's also a few smaller more intimate places that kind of kept the old buildings and 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 showed some restraint. In other words, they have a post office, they have a shoe repair store. They're you know they're 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 more neighborhood. And I interviewed the guy who did those, and it, it was very interesting.
0: The other thing I I kind of walked away with too are are thinking about family boundaries also, because you can never like you were saying that the kids in a family are not raised by the same parents there's a limit to how far your siblings can enter your life or experience what you're experiencing and how in some ways how alone you are or how once you do become an adult you can't you often don't care for your siblings in the similar way as when you're kids
1: i think that's true and even even these siblings who it's funny. I was just teaching a lovely Catherine Mansfield story, which is very much about social castes within a town and the two little sisters who are the at the bottom of the pecking order and who the other children are instructed by their parents not to talk to because their mother is a seamstress and there is no father in the picture. And they're very sweet with each other. And I think these kids have some of that. They have some of the closeness that's born out of out of having gone through hard things together. But it's true that as adults, you know, they're they're gonna live their own their lives and they 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 love their siblings and they'll see them, they see that they do see each other, but it, you know, they're not gonna they're not gonna live together again. They're not gonna make their lives together. They're gonna find the people who are who are part of their tribe and you know make their own adult families, whether those be literal families or or families of, of affection.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the challenges that Donnie faced as being the youngest and the things that he was dealing with is that his family would not accept his amends. Um, it's really? an important part of being in AA. His his mother did, but the, the others didn't. And I thought this was really interesting because in a way, I don't think that they meant that, but it's kind of cruel. Like he was really trying to do that. And I think it was like never complete for him.
1: No. And it was, it's almost a comic thing that he's, he's, he's really, he's a very sincere young man and he really wants to make amends. And, and of course his, his brother and sister, they don't want to hear his amends because they feel terrible that he's suffered. So, and so they feel guilty and also they, they're proud of him. They feel he's doing well. He's, he's, he's beaten this. He's, he's gotten his, his addiction under control he's living a good life now so they they don't want to think about it they want it to be done and they want it to be fine and they certainly don't want to accept an apology because they feel guilty the same thing with julie um and there's even you know to to take it even further he at one point goes to a a store where he and his friends Stole a bunch of flowers. They had one of those grocery stores that has flowers outside, and they came one raucous night, and it was late at night, and nobody was attending the flowers. Um, the the attendant, the person who was supposed to take the money for the flowers, was probably on a cigarette break or something. So they took a bunch of flowers, and he's coming years later to this this supermarket, talking to a manager, and saying, "I want to give you money back for this theft that I performed years ago." and the manager, you know, with the pen behind his ear, is saying, "You know, I don't know anything about these flowers, and 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 I can't, I can't take your money. We don't." And he, and he says, "Well, can't you just take it as a as a tip, maybe?" He said, you know, we're a grocery store. We don't accept tip." And anyway, it goes on like this. So yeah, it's true that. But he he, you know, his realist life is with with another person who's also suffering from a similar compulsion.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. It's interesting how all three of them found love in the end as well, I think, because there were I felt like there were similarities between them. Like Walter, we see with both Walter and Lena, a person in their life that they either just loved from afar and were friends with or someone that they dated, but it couldn't work out in the end and how their hearts were kind of broken from that or just unfulfilled. And how all three of them kind of ended up with someone who was more their friend, someone who was more safe in a way, someone who it's not that their relationships weren't good, but they just all found love in a a less dangerous way.
1: Well, especially Walter and Lena, I think, I think Donnie actually did the first person he was really crazy about and really fell for amazingly. It worked out, um, In a way, to his surprise, I mean, he he almost had resigned himself to thinking it wouldn't work out. And then it did.
0: Yeah, Um, because because you felt like she wasn't he liked her, but she wasn't ready.
1: She wasn't ready. She was older. She was I don't know. She had lots of objections to him in the abstract. You know, he was too young. He was a lot of things. But um, eventually she succumbed. And the other two. The other two, I think, I think you know, I think, I think Walter especially really had a stark sort of crush on one woman, who was who he felt was more similar to himself. She was struggling more in in various ways and had a had a kind of romantic attachment and a romantic feeling about her, but ended up with with really his best friend, who was the person he could always talk to more, and who who actually tracked his details and and that felt right for him I think for Lena she was with somebody it just didn't work with and eventually fell for for one of one of her good friends although I think again in her case it was sort of in between I think there were some reasons that she thought it wouldn't work initially but it did Writing
0: about Diane in the asylum, she, again, it was the 70s. There was a doctor there, Dr. Moss, that the family really loved, that she felt safe with. There was a nice nurse that took care of her. Um, I'm curious if you had to do a lot of research and if writing those parts felt different maybe than the other parts.
1: Not so much. I think I did do a lot of research. Um, more than you know, the way one does research, one gets interested in it. And one does more research than one even one even needs or uses. But I um the closest hospital to here, I live in, I live in LA in Santa Monica, and the closest hospital that's still, you know, still operating is called Metropolitan Hospital, which is in Norwalk, which is a little over an hour away, not so far. So I went down there a number of times and and you know, talked to all kinds of people and saw a lot of things but um ended up really getting getting to know three particular former employers, two em- employees, two um two nurses they're all retired now because they were they they sort of had their careers during this period. so I wanted to talk about this period. and they it's very interesting. they're in their 80s, I think um one is a retired psych tech technician and the other two are retired nurses. Um, and they had so many stories of their life in the hospital. They actually, they actually go in now. Um, they are actually put. They they help put together a museum on the property of the past of the, the, the hospital's history. But now they they still are volunteering to put the archives in order. And of course, the archives are just endless boxes, and boxes of files. So I think it's a, it's an almost thankless task, but they're they 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 felt they i mean they they were called you know one doesn't want to put too rosy a, a glow on it either they would call terrible things and, and terrible doctors but also also very kind kind doctors and 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 they believed in a lot of cases that that they helped people and they they're very upset with I, I think two things in particular upset them and upset most of the people i've talked to who had worked at these hospitals for a long time One is the legislation that prohibits any kind of work. It used to be that in these institutions, people would work in the kitchen, or they 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 would often have self-sustaining farms. This one, this one in California Metropolitan, had a whole farm. They had a dairy, they had orchards, they had vegetable gardens. They grew their own vegetables, and originally, patients would work in those gardens. Then legislation passed, which required, which prohibited that kind of labor and you understand you certainly wouldn't want patients exploited on the other hand to have a sort of useful function in the community where you're living is a good thing you know and and they regret that and also they felt that um now it's very it's very hard for for a hospital to to hold anyone so so you had people who were really evidently very sick who couldn't have who who couldn't have been committed and their part, you know left and really hurt themselves more was there
0: and maybe that that was it but was there something that struck you the most about all of your research from talking to shopping developers to nurses to visiting these oh places
1: God, so much that i read a lot about you know Architecture theory in this century. I I think there were there were different parts, but no, there were a lot of things that really were very moving um, and striking. I think um, I think the shopping center thing was very interesting. That that I mean, there were lots of little bits that were very very interesting to me. That sort of air conditioning made malls possible. That's when they really took off. And of course, we're now sort of at the end of of a mall era. but and then I think these institutions, I mean, at their best, they almost functioned. It seemed as kind of a almost a factory town. Like some of the some of the nurses went to work there right out of high school, and their parents had worked there too. And the hospital would pay to send them to get their education so they could be trained. And you know, some people lived on the premises and had reduced rent in, in exchange for sort of more or less being on call some of the time. So it it was all very fascinating. Do you ever
0: carry over research or ideas from one book to the other?
1: I don't think so. It, it, it really, it's funny, somebody, somebody, some, 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 somebody asked, some interviewer asked, you know, is writing books like therapy? And I was thinking that it, it, in a way it's more profound than therapy it's certainly less ex, less expensive but i think in in some ways it, it is more profound because i think when you're when you finish a book i think you're you're ready to let it go
0: yeah it's like maybe a catharsis you didn't even know you needed
1: and and, and it it takes a long time to get to that point but yes i think when i i don't I don't have a desire. I'm very glad to see my books on a shelf in my house, but I don't have a desire to open them and reread them. I'm afraid I'd start start editing, revising.
0: So in the beginning, you mentioned, we were talking about time, and you said, I think what you were saying was that you thought about plot more maybe in the beginning of your writing life. I'm not sure. I don't want to misinterpret that. I
1: I thought... um, I I didn't trust plot. I I thought sort of, I was very suspicious of plot. I was suspicious of, um, of, I think the classic plot, you know, in the, in the, in the oldest novels, a lot of time, plot has a moralistic um, consistency so that someone does something bad and by the end, they're punished for it. But weirdly enough, I mean, we see that in life too, you know, and, and it's not, it's not, I don't think most of us think of it as, as some you know patriarchal god in, in the clouds smiting someone. But I think just the human collective. I mean, if you are bad to people enough, enough people, there, there will be some results of that. And and conversely the opposite. So so I mean, I think I think I do I do trust more in in the collective community
0: you're not writing books without plot, you know, they have plot.
1: They definitely have plot. Now, I I think, I think more so, I think I'm more interested in plot and, and the zigzags of fortune. Um,
0: Yeah. It's probably different than maybe we were taught in eighth grade.
1: Yeah. Very different than we were taught in eighth grade. And thank goodness we no longer have to write topic sentences. You end
0: the book with some poetry and I'm curious both about some poetry and endings and how long you think about them, if they're more spontaneous, if it changes from book to book.
1: I think it changes a little from book to book, but I think I think actually for me, endings are almost always sort of spontaneous. I mean, I, I work and work on the book for years. And usually by the time I end it, it just the ending writes itself. The ending falls from the sky and so on. And can you feel it in your body when you know you have it? I think so. I think the ending I do feel. And then, I mean, in terms of the little copy editing things, when I'm finished, finished, finished with the book, I don't know about that. Sometimes my editor says, "No, you're, you're now making things worse," so I stop. But with the actual literal ending, yes, I feel like I feel like that. It usually feels like the ending is where it should be.
0: Uh, I. If- I think, did you study poetry in college? I did. Yeah, and so what's the role that that plays for you as a writer?
1: Yeah, I had amazing teachers too. I was at Berkeley and I was just very lucky. Um, I had Tom Gunn and Seamus Heaney. Over in the Slavic department was Cheslav Milos teaching literature, but it was, a, it was a golden moment. So how does it play into your writing? It plays into my writing only in that I'm a reader. I'm a big reader of poetry. And I think, you know, all... All writing that's interesting, you know, has to be done on the level of the sentence. So that, so that that is, poets are, poets do that most intensely. So, it's kind of always informing us.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer?
1: Sure. Well, I, I, I think, I was thinking, I, mm-hmm. I taught, I, I often teach Middlemarch, so I have millions of sections from that. But instead, I thought. Since we're talking about a book that, that I'm not writing at the moment that I'm finished, I thought I would write, I would read a little passage from from Nabokov talking about, about having written his books. He says, every serious writer, I dare say, is aware of this or that published book of his as of a constant comforting presence. Its pilot light is steadily burning somewhere in the basement, and a mere touch applied to one's private thermostat instantly results in a quiet little explosion of familiar warmth. This presence, this glow of the book in an ever-accessible remoteness is a most companionable feeling, and the better the book has conformed to its prefigured contour and color, the ampler and smoother it glows. But even so, there are certain points by favorite hollows that one evokes more eagerly and enjoys more tenderly than the rest of one's book.
0: And what is that from? And do you want to tell us more about choosing that?
1: That's from a little um, section he wrote. That's from a little commentary he wrote years after having written Lolita. And is there anything else you want to say about it? Well, he goes on then to, to sort of name his favorite points of the book, which are very small points in which which many readers might just gloss over, but for him, they're kind of pretty, pretty underpinning.
0: Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or change from the first draft or something you liked?
1: Sure. This is a section um, of Lena on a date, um, wondering with someone she really likes. In a basement hamburger place, Sasha asked about her parents' She looked down at the paper placemat and told him her mother was in a state institution. As facts of her mother's illness spilled out, it sounded as if she were exaggerating. Lithium, Elavil, Thorazine. There was no way to translate the truth about her life. It sounded sincere. When she lifted her eyes, she saw his face ratcheted into high alarm. He tried to talk, but his jaw moved without words. Has she been there long, he finally managed? Six years. Everything about him was exactly right. Even things she normally wouldn't like. His relish for Cokes, for example, or red meat. Is she getting better, do you think? I don't know, Nina said. She'd once sent her friend Jess, the scientist, a list of the drugs her mother was on and asked if she could tell her what they did. Jess tried to explain and Lena got lost. She asked Jess if a normal brain made by itself the compounds that were in the drugs. The chemical imbalance model, it's it's just a metaphor, Jess had said. We develop these compounds to treat an illness, usually cancer, that's where the money is. Say it doesn't work, but they notice the trial subjects report feeling a little happier, so then they do another trial. So we have these drugs that sometimes work. That's all we really know. Lena's father was easier to talk about. For most of her life, they hadn't had a working telephone number for him. But now at 60, he had the first job Lena had heard of since he'd married Lucille decades ago. He was the general concessions manager in the casino on the Idaho-Nevada border. She could talk about him the way most people their age talked about their parents, with patient understanding, scorn.
0: Do you want to share about why you chose that one?
1: Um, I chose that one because it just, it seemed on the, you know, dating is kind of a light thing in life. It's It's not the most you know, but, but even, even in something like dating, um, her mother's situation comes up. Where do you write? I write, oh, it's funny. I, when I was younger, I really, my goal, like my dream was to have an office and I used to write in an office and I, I actually have an office in Santa Monica, which I sublet now. And I also have an office at UCLA neither of which i work in these days i i like to work at home close to close to the you know the coffee maker and close to where i can make my own coffee and grab food and and where the dog is welcome and and it's funny i i work in different places in the house i'm i'm right now in in the dining room table but often i i i'm my children are grown i i'm you know during the day I'm alone in the house, I sometimes work as, as one would in college, you know, on my bed.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Um, I do a lot of things other than writing. I'm not I'm not sure I do them specifically to get away, but um, I, I hike, I, I, I swim. I do, I do a lot of things like that. I, I used to, I used to be a runner. So I used to run five, six miles every day. Now I, I'm, I'm doing other things. I'm biking and, and hiking. Um what else do I do? I teach, you know, I do a lot of things. I go, I go out to I recently started going back to movies, which is so exciting. Um, go to museums, see mostly see friends. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Actually, this novel was really wonderful in that I had I have two good friends who are novelists whose work I respect immensely. And um Michelle Hanavin and Ian Lee, and with both of them, we we formed our own ways. Michelle and I actually, at one point, we had drafts, and we actually literally read out loud our entire novels to the other one over a weekend. It was fantastic. And Ian and I have a, a pattern where we we share work at the end of the week, so usually Fridays. Our deadline is Friday, although we sometimes give ourselves leeway till Sunday. And we're doing that now again with our new books. But we send whatever we manage to do that week. And once in a while, we'll have a week where, where, for example, I'm I'm a search committee at UCLA, so it's been I've been a little taken up with that. And once in a while, we'll have a week where we'll say, well, I really wasn't able to. But even that accounting is a good thing, and it's it's been just great. So I feel very lucky.
0: How do you deal with rejection?
1: Oh, that's a hard one. I I. I was just talking to some one of my students asked that a few days ago. I think as much as possible, it's good to do not take it personally and to learn from it if there's anything that can be learned from, and mostly just to move on. Um, I more than one friend who's been an editor has told me the following. Uh, I guess it's a trend, or a fact, even, uh, but but they will say that if they write a rejection letter to a young man, often they'll get an encouraging rejection letter. Um, they'll often get another manuscript the next day or two days later. And sometimes they write the same level of a rejection letter with the same level of encouragement to a young woman, and they never hear from her again. So I think the main thing is don't take it personally. Keep going. Um, remember that this is not a field that has empirical standards that can be tested on everyone. I mean, anyone who has any doubts about the justice of the hierarchy just should look at the list of Pulitzer Prize winners from the 20s and 30s. They're they they're largely books you haven't heard of, you know, while Faulkner was publishing, um, you know, many people were eligible for the Nobel Prize who did not get it, and many people we don't read anymore do. So, I mean, from, from the very top level of of accolade down there is really no absolute standard and really we're all reading for pleasure and for edification and for what what we connect with personally so it's kind of your job to to keep trying until you find the reader that's right for you what is your favorite word oh i kept thinking of that and thinking of that and i couldn't think of it um henry james said that um a summer afternoon with the most beautiful words in the English language. And I thought of the phrase, we have time. I like that.
0: Thank you so much for your time and sharing oh, this you. hour. This so nice. If you like today's show with Mona Simpson, author of the novel commitment, check out my interview with Ursula Hagee, author of the novel, the patron saint of pregnant girls. We talked about how she has to become her characters to write about them transitioning from German to English in her dreams and quitting writing, or trying to quit, for several years after many rejections. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. So please go to patreon.com slash and please send some 10 year anniversary love coming up in the next few months on first draft interviews with TC Boyle, Sebastian Berry and Adrian Brodeur. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes first draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.